You're so stupid. Did you think you could do that? Why did you even try? You're so ugly. No one's ever going to love you. Don't even bother. You always fail anyway. I wish I could tell you that those statements were the statements that were told to me as a young person and that I have done away with them and never, ever adhered to those words, but they're not. They're the statements that I've said to myself this month alone. Hateful words. Damning words. Words that are meant to tear down. Today, we're going to end our series. We're talking about how do we deal with difficult emotions in this series and how the gospel speaks to each one of these issues. We talked about guilt and shame, envy and jealousy. We've talked about anger and bitterness. And today, we're talking about self-hate. I wonder what the sentences you say to yourself are. I wonder what the narrative is, what the script that you read from when it comes to you. Maybe it's just like mine, maybe it's totally different, but you've got yours, don't you? See, if you're a Christian here and you love Jesus, or if you're a, a complete agnostic or atheist or of another religion and someone invited you here, this is one thing we can all agree on. There's some negative things that we talk to ourselves. Isn't that true? How do we deal with that? How do we confront those hateful messages that we, if we're honest, agree with? And we go, yeah, that's true. And we got evidence. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. We got evidence about the kind of parent that we've been. We got evidence of the kind of Christian we've been. We got evidence of the way we look and the way we act. We got evidence. God knows. God knows. And so today, God wants to speak into our self-hate. But here's the thing. I want you to be open to what God has to say. We just sung a song that said, if you said it, we believe it. But the fact is, if we got very honest, only what you say agrees with us do we believe. And so what I want us to do is I want us to lay our faulty, broken belief systems about ourselves down. Hear the words of our Lord and ask him to revolutionize our thinking. Are we okay? Can we do this? So 
inside your bulletins, what you're going to find is what we call a sermon map. This sermon map is meant to help you follow along and quite frankly, remember what we're about to learn. Because here's the reality. The shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. And so I want you to remember this because this is going to come back to you again. This is such an important sermon for you. Listen, if you're married, this sermon matters. You know why? Because your self-hatred will affect the way you relate to your husband, sometimes in ways that will destroy your marriage. If you're single, this is important. Why? Because the way you relate to those around you and the way you look for a spouse will be affected by what you say to yourself. If you're young, this is an important message because the way you think of yourself will, will project the trajectory of your life. We all need this message. And so maybe you're in a wonderful place. Maybe you're super positive and you're like, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to listen to this message. This message I know is not for so-and-so because if it was for so-and-so, God would have brought them here. This message is for the person sitting in your seat wearing your shirt. This message is for me. There are, are common words or common uh, traps we fall into. You can see in your sermon map, you have a few lines. Write this common trap. I'm going to give you one of them before we get into the scriptures. I'll give you five of them before we get into the scriptures. Failure. Write that down. Failure. I'm bad. I'm condemned. Here's my evidence before I got saved. Here's my evidence one hour ago. I have evidence for this one. I'm condemned. I'm a moral failure. I don't deserve God's love. Failure. A second common trap of self-haters is outcast. I am completely and utterly rejected. Nobody can ever love me. Nobody will ever love me. I am by myself and all alone. I am an outcast. The other is exposed. You are like Adam and Eve in the garden after eating the fruit. Covering, this one is so real to me, covering yourself with leaves, pretending to be someone that you're not, fearing that people will get to see the real you, then they'll reject you. You're just afraid to be exposed. Dirty. You are unclean. A horrible person. You're despicable. Disgusting. 
Other people can be forgiven. Other people can experience God's love, not you. You're dirty. And some of us, we're dirty because of what we did. Isn't that true? But other of us, we're dirty because of what was done to us. The harm, the abuse. And then we took that dirty on and we said, let's see if we can't continue this tradition. Others, here's the fifth one, degraded. Again, these are all self-hatred words. You're dehumanized. You don't matter. You're invalidated. For every one of our categories of self-hate, God has a, a redemptive story of love. For every category of self-hate, God comes in and says, I have a better story to tell. For every category of self-hate, the ones that I've mentioned and the ones that I haven't, the ones that you keep on telling yourself and don't even want to admit, God says, I am better than your self-hate. So we're going to look at a text. We're going to look at a text because not because it speaks exclusively to self-hate, but rather because it speaks about how generally we ought to view ourselves. And so it's an important, but it's outside. It's not specifically speaking on self-hate. So I want to give you this sort of, oh, what do I want to give you? I want to give you this sort of sense. There's this book, 1 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, there is a church filled with broken people. Man, there are people there who drink too much, sex too much, spend too much, eat too much. There are people who have come into the new family of Jesus with some old attitudes and behavior and think that those new attitudes and behaviors are just all right. There are people in the Corinthian church who are behaving like yesterday, not knowing that God has given them a new day. There are people in 1 Corinthians who are just like us. And this, this man, Paul, who planted the church there, he sends a letter and, and just he deals with these um, like big categories. Let's see if we can't put them up here. First is unity. And in verse one, um, verses one through four, uh, verses, chapters one through four, Paul, uh, Paul the apostle, Paul is an apostle. He, he loved Jesus. Jesus saved him in a miraculous way. And then he started to serve Jesus. That's who Paul, the apostle is. And then he wrote some letters through, imagine this. God used some of his most painful experiences in life to be a blessing to you and me 2,000 years later. Don't tell me God can't use your hurt for the help of others. So that guy, that guy, he's writing to the church and they're broken. They're broke. They're just 
just like us. And so the first uh, section of 1 Corinthians is unity. He's trying to address unity or disunity. And so he does that through chapters 1 and 4. 5 through 7 is sex. He starts speaking about sex, what's holy, what's not holy, what is right, what's not right. He starts talking about sex. I wonder if any of y'all might want to read 1 Corinthians after this. Maybe you should. Put it down. Um, food. 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 He starts talking about food in chapters 8 through 10, spiritual gifts in 11 through 14, and resurrection in 15 and 16. Here's his point. After every single uh, 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 section, what he does is he says what the problem is, and then he says that there's a gospel of Jesus Christ that comes in and resolves the issue of that problem. Because the point of 1 Corinthians is to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ affects every area of our life, and it does so in a winsome and beautiful way that transforms our hearts for joy and rest in Jesus. Does this make sense so far? Okay, so this is the context that he's writing in, and in that context he says, Two, sent, not two sentences, we're going to look at two verses because it's a really big thing and we don't have the time um, to look at the whole section. But we're going to look at chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It's in that sermon map that I told you about, but if you have a Bible, you can feel free to look at it. But it's there, especially if you forgot to bring your Bible, you didn't know you're supposed to. Okay, so it says this. Now, we have a tradition, another tradition in our church, and one of them is that we stand at the reading of God's word. The reason we stand at the reading of God's word is because we want to remind our bodies that what we're going to read right now has more authority than our own opinions. Yes? Okay, so we stand in respect and reverence to God. It doesn't make you more holy or anything like that. And by the way, if you can't stand, it's cool. But I'm just telling you that we need to be reminded, oh yeah, what's going to be read right now is the scriptures and that that has more authority than our own opinions. Yes? Okay, so let's read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Pause. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please have a seat. So Paul, remember what I said in the very first section of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with disunity. And so there's a point right here, just before this, where people are saying, I follow, like they're, they're, they're picking their heroes. So if we did this in this church, some would say, like you would go, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a member of the Next Step Community Church because Zach, that guy is super dope. I love that pastor, Zach. He does so much mercy ministry. It's amazing. And then someone goes up, yeah, Zach, I could take him or leave him. You know, you know who I really love? It's, it's Chris. Chris is the one who's like um, the reason I'm going to learn from Chris. And then others, you know, yeah, yeah, that's all right. But you know what? I, I'm, I'm down with Ed. Is Ed preaching? Because if Ed's not preaching, I'm not coming. Okay. So Paul is looking at that as a form of disunity. It's corrupting. It's, it's hurting the body of Christ. And then he breaks out in this perspective of how others see him and how he sees himself that's so off the reservation, that's so off our mental maps that we don't even have a category in our brain for it. 
He's like, oh, 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 some people love this guy named Apollos, who was like an incredible orator. And some people are down with Peter. Who's not down with Peter? Whole cities are named after him. And others are down with Paul. And Paul is going, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand. Judgment. I'm not leaving up to you. Judgment. I'm not putting in your hands. What you think of me is not the category that I identify in. What you think of me is what you think of me. Now, this is a very difficult thing for self-haters. Self-haters almost knee-jerk instinctively. If you think of good, good of me, then I'm all right. If you think not so good of me, then I'm not all right. Self-haters fall into this trap. And so Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not what you think of me. And if you've been in our society and in our culture, and certainly if you've made 12-step meetings, you have a saying for this. Yo, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. I don't care what y'all think about me. It's what about what I think of myself. To which Paul would say, nah, 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 nah. Not the case. He says, and you could see it in the text. He says, I don't care what y'all think about me. Now check this out. All of society, all of your 12-step programs, every moment of your life, yo, don't care about other, what other people think of you. It only matters what you think of you. Psh, you must not know what I think of me to tell me that. Isn't that true? What do you think of you? Right? Sometimes so good, sometimes not so good. What do you think of you? If I got very honest right now with you, I would cry. I would just cry. And Paul says, Paul says, I don't care what you think of me. Check it. I don't even care what I think of me. And then he, he cooperates it and says this. This is so great. He says this. He goes, I don't judge myself. And then he says something. Now watch this. Come closer. He says two things that are simultaneously true in the gospel that we need to preach to our own hearts. He says this. My conscience is clear, but that don't make me innocent. My conscience is clear, but that don't make me innocent. The fact is, is that Paul's conscience was clear because it was washed by Christ. But that doesn't mean that he never sinned. That doesn't mean that he wasn't broken. That doesn't mean that he didn't go in a way that he wished he hadn't. As a pastor... As an apostle, Paul had junk that he had to deal with. He had a clear, how, would, how, how do you even do that? How is your conscience clear, but know that you're not innocent? It comes in with this next phrase. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. 
Now, we got to pause there for a second, because some of y'all will use this as a defense to sin, and I want to speak into that. You get what I'm saying, right? Do y'all get what I'm saying? It's like, y'all can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And I know, I know, I know, I know. I've said it too. I've said it too. But you know when I say that, what I'm really saying is I'm trying to justify my own sin so I don't have to be accountable to nobody. Only God can judge me. Beloved, if only God can judge me, be very afraid. Be very afraid. Like it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But Paul is not talking about only God can judge me separate from the gospel. See, God condemns sin. God punishes sin. God makes sure that he addresses sin. But check this out. God is so violent against sin that the only thing that he does against, like, it's like blood. The only thing. Like you want, you want the remission of sin? Blood. I want to see blood. But it's not your blood. There's another blood that's more precious. And that's why he says, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, if we're honest, do you see some of the sort of picturesque terms that Paul is using? Paul is using these picturesque terms, these terms that are like loaded with legal um, jargon. He says this, he goes, I am, if I am judged by you, or by any human court. Do you see that? He's creating a picture. Judged human court. Then he says, I don't even judge. There it is again. Myself. And then he goes, it is the Lord who judges me. I don't know if you've ever watched um, uh, one of these uh, America's Got Talent or American Idol thing. Have you ever seen those shows? And you know what happens, right? You go, right, check. So there's like these judges and they're sitting there and they're all very successful at what they do. And you come up <clears throat> and then listen to me, listen to me. You look for the approval of the judge to let you go to the next level where joy is at, where acceptance is at, where success is at. <clears throat> Please say that I'm okay. Please justify my existence. Please say that this thing that I got is good enough. wait there. And sometimes they get a ticket that says, you're going to the next one. And tears, hot tears run down their face. See, they know the weight of being judged. And then there are other situations where we're judged. Maybe we go into a, a courtroom and we stand there and we look at the judge and we say, please, I may or may not be guilty, 
but please, please find me innocent. The thing that's common about both those circumstances is that you and I experience that every single day. We go into the court of our friends and we say, please accept me, please. That's why we fake so much. That's why we put the mask on so much. Because if you saw the real me, you would judge me. You would say, no golden ticket for you. You would say, guilty, not innocent. But, but Paul says, no, 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 beloved. Court's out of session. I've already judged you in Christ. And because I've judged you in Christ, you get received. You get loved. If you believed this, you would be jumping up and down, screaming, amen. Like if you actually believed what I'm just told you right now, you would lose your mind. No more auditions. None. No, 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 no. Hey, <clears throat> hey, hey, before you sing, I just want you to know you're going to California. I just want you to know, before you sing, now, now, now go sing your Hey, 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 before, before I, 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 I render this sentence, I want you to know it's innocent. It's innocent. Now, you're going to have to stay here for a few hours while we go through these proceedings, but I just want you to know it's innocent. Listen. The freedom, the freedom that you would experience, the freedom that I would experience if we just believed this one sentence, it is the Lord who judges me. Now, how does he judge you? How does he judge you? He judges you guilty. Then God himself, Jesus, comes and pays the sin penalty for your guilt so that you could get out of the court. You could get out of the audition. That's how it happens. And when this happens... It changes everything. Now, I want you to write down what I'm about to tell you because this is going to change the way people see you, your standards, and all this other stuff, okay? And we got to go through it real, real quick, okay? Because the babies are getting uncomfortable. All right, here we go. Let's do it. Let's do this. Let's do this. Come on. I want you to pay attention. We're going to get down right now, okay? When, when we are self-haters, look, look, look. When we are self-haters, we live for the wrong eyes. Would you write that down? We live for the wrong eyes. When I become attuned to what my opinion of myself or others' opinion of me, it brings, I, I, what I'm doing is I'm going into the wrong courtroom. I live for other people. We live for the wrong eyes. We have to start living. Check this out. In, instead, we have to start living for the eyes that matter. The eyes that know you're dirty, the, eye, the eyes that know you're gully, the eyes that know you're grimy, the eyes that know you're nasty, those eyes and still says, I have my eyes on you. I will guide you with my eye. Those eyes, not those. Hey, listen, you are justified in thinking so low of me. Even I am justified in thinking so low of me. But there's one whose eyes and authority are higher. And he says, courts out. Auditions over. We live for the wrong eyes, but in the gospel, we start living for the eyes that matter. Self-haters, listen 
to the wrong voice. They live for the wrong eyes and they listen to the wrong voice. These accusatory voices. Maybe you feel mocked or attacked justifiably. People are literally mocking or attacking you. Maybe you're mocking or attacking yourself. You're listening to the wrong voice. You go, you go, I don't deserve God's love. And God comes in with his beautiful voice and says, I know, but I'll give you my love anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at all I've done. Listen, I know you're grimy and I know it better than you. I've got 50 other details about your grimy that you don't even acknowledge. Listen, his voice says, loved, redeemed, pursued. You're listening to the wrong voice, but the gospel leads us to listen to the voice that matters. Third, we lean on the wrong standard. Self-haters lean on the wrong standard, but according to what Paul just taught us, there's another standard, not what they think, not what I think, but what God has done on our behalf. That is the standard by which we get to lead, lead our lives. See, we condemn ourselves. There are things like murder, abortion, anger, hostility, sexual immorality, false presentation. I'm not, or other standards, like I'm not as handsome as my brother, or I'm not as smart as my sister. These standards that we say that we're no good because we don't meet. Self-haters lean on the wrong standards, but gospel-centered people lean on the standards that matter. Yep, that was sin. Yep, it's punishable by death. Yep, I paid the penalty so that you can come in relationship with me, innocent and free. And lastly, self-haters look to the wrong savior. And here, I want you to write down two questions. I want you to write these two questions down real quick. Here it is. Who is the sin bearer? Who is the sin bearer in your life? Is it you? You? No. No. Who is the sin bearer? And then here's the second question that's related to it. Am, am, am I the savior? Ah, don't say no so fast, beloved. I can't tell you how many people have sinned and said, I can't go back to church. Why? Why can't you come back to church? And here's the, here's the short answer. Because I'm the Savior. I need to get myself right before I can get right before the Lord. Oh, what a lie from the pit of hell. Are you the Savior? Don't be the Savior. Don't be the Savior. 
But that's what self-haters do. They live for the wrong eyes. They listen to the wrong voice. They lean for, on the wrong standard. They look to the wrong Savior. But Christ followers, we lean on the Savior who laid down his life 